Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 11. Psalm chapter 11. We're going to read this together. As you see, I am going to be using at least one reference out of the Septuagint this morning. Uh, and, uh, and, of course, the heading as well. And so um, we will under, you'll understand several of that as we go through. Psalm chapter 11. For the end, a psalm of David. In the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals. Fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. As we come into this psalm, we hopefully recognize its clear connection with what we studied really last week. We talked about the uh, significance of the sinfulness of men and the necessity of God's intervention. That God intervenes by grace and mercy first, and then after he's done that and that has been rejected, that his next intervention has to be one of wrath. And so this is uh, very similarly along that vein, and it really talks about, well, that's how God is going to intervene. How do we respond? And there are several key things here in this very short psalm that uh, are really something we're grappling with in our day and makes it very apparent that this is uh, not just for one generation, but for many generations, particularly perhaps the generation of the end. We again have the focus of this is being on the Lord, that we begin by talking to or really speaking about the Lord uh, rather than being directed towards Him. And this is a different kind of psalm. We have psalms that are directed toward Him and psalms that are instructive of Him. And then we have psalms that are speaking to one another uh, in, uh, in terms of uh, our experience. And so this is one of those psalms speaking of him, and really it seems to be directed to a, another party, another uh, human party, rather than up to the Lord. For we do not have a direct statement to God in this passage, as we have seen previously. We really have a statement to others. And so this becomes a community psalm. It is a psalm that I want to share with you. And, and we have songs like that. We have songs in our hymn book that are directed to God, we have psalms that are directed to one another. We have confessional psalms where we declare our intent to follow after the Lord. Um, and so that's also directed normally to God. Um, but we also have instructional psalms that basically teach us about God. And so we come to this, and this is really an a, a instructional psalm that really talks about the place of God's authority in regards to mankind and what our relationship is with that. 
And so we begin by a declaration. And so the, the, this is the testimony of the psalmist. The testimony of the psalmist is, I trust in the Lord. And that's a pretty direct statement. It says, in the Lord I put my trust, and that is his commitment of his life. That is who he is. That is, by definition, how he would describe himself. Um, that I am one who is trusting in the Lord. And let that be our characterization. Uh, not just that I am, that that's one of the things I do, that that's part of me, but rather that this defines me. And this is going to be very important in the base, in the, in the balance of this psalm, is that this is the defining element of who we are as followers of Jesus Christ, is we are those who, of all you want to ask me about what I am like, and if you're among men, they'll ask you, well, what do you do for a living? That's very typical. Uh, what are your interests and activities? Um, is, is pretty typical, and we'll talk about ball, your favorite ball teams and things like that. Um, and, and to try to work out who this person is. We might talk about some of their relationships, whether they're married or not, uh, but that's usually not a primary thing that men talk about. Uh, gals, on the other hand, are very different, and when they try to figure out who each other are, they'll focus first on relationships and really uh, work there predominantly and then extend to some other things. Uh, what we, uh, when we start to share who we are with people, this is our really opportunity to say, well, here's what defines me. And so if I talk to somebody, it doesn't take me long to figure out what defines them. It is the things that they will present to me as the defining qualities. Some of them are very shallow and are kind of empty, frankly. Uh, much of what our society is all concerned about defining who we are is pretty shallow. And it's not like you had any choice in the matter. Uh, the color of your skin or your eyes or your hair or your height or your... If you use that to define yourself, um, that's pretty shallow because you pretty much had no choice in those matters. They were things that you inherited at birth, and that's not really something that tells me who you are. It tells me what you are. Okay, It tells me that. It tells me your genetic makeup and things, but it doesn't tell me who you are. And so I don't define myself by being uh, of this certain heritage or of this language group. And, and the Bible makes room for that. It says people, tongues, tribes, and nations. That's the divisions of men. But in terms of defining who I am, uh, I want to transcend those shallow things I had no control over. I had zero control, um, and this unnerves people apparently in our day, of whether I'm a man or a woman. I was born one or the other, right? And so I was born a man, and, and people uh, are now trying to say they can choose, uh, which is utter nonsense. Uh, but why is that so important is because we have no depth of identification. All of these other things are incidental. You had no control over any of that thing. Whether you were a man or woman, you had no control of that. What color your skin is, hair is, your height. Uh, you have no control over those things, really. Um, 
these are things that you inherited. And if we use that to define ourselves, then we really don't know who you are. We just know what you are, and, and that's shallow. And so we want to say, well, what makes you tick? Maybe that's a, you know, what makes you function? What are your priorities? What's important to you? Well, if all you have in your identity list are these things that you had no choice over, and that's all you come to, and that's all you have to identify yourself, you know, I'm, I'm you know, Dutch, male, redhead, 60-year-old. You know, if that's all I have, that's pretty pathetic. And if that's all I want to talk about, and I've met people like that, they just want to delve into their, their lineal heritage. Their, so they'll go in and find their, their family, and they'll, they'll want to see who they're related to in the past, or, or they'll want to join the, the red-headed society, because, and there is one of those. Um, or, you know, the Dutch, or the, you know, they want to, everything, their whole life is enveloped by these very shallow traits that they had no choice in, that they inherited, and they've made that the foundation of their life. And that's shallow and empty. And we come to this psalm, and the first thing we want to communicate is that here's who I am. In the Lord, I put my trust. I have put it, this is who I am. And of all the other things that are shallow and unimportant, what my priority of life is, is the defining characteristic of who I am. I am one who trusts in the Lord. That affects every decision I make. It affects every conversation I have, every relationship I have, every uh, part of the activity of my life uh, should be enveloped in this definition of who is uh, Kirk Wessling. You know, I could use my, oh, I have this occupation, I have these hobbies, I have... No, ultimately, all those things, while those are more selective, and now I've chosen those things in my life, and I can talk about my, my credential, my education, I can talk about my experience... Well, we're getting a little bit deeper because now you actually participated in that and, and exercise yourself. But, but even those are dissatisfying, ultimately. But we come to this that this is now defines my ethics. It defines my attitudes. It defines um, my future. It, it, it rectifies my past. It, it, it describes how I'm going to engage the present, uh, is this definition. I am one who, who puts my trust in the Lord. And the psalmist begins there because he's really in, encountering, as he's going to share with us very quickly here, uh, a statement. And the statement, well, let's go into it. Let's go into it. It says, if this is who I am, essentially, this is who I am. I am someone who trusts in the Lord. So the question now, he says, how can you say this to someone like me? How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow, they make ready their arrow on the string, that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. There's some question of, of, a little bit of where we end with this engagement, but essentially he's been told, 
Um, you can't trust in the Lord. You have put your, your life, you have defined yourself erroneously, and you should just run and hide when things get difficult. Flee as a bird to the mountain and just fly away from it all. And that's the solution to the problems of this world, particularly the problem of evil. How do we resolve the problem of evil? How do the Christians react to it? And the invitation is to just run away. But we're not just running away from evil. We're going to talk about that here shortly and how difficult that becomes um, to be in the world but not of the world is the, is the designation, right? And so we're going to get to that. But we're not really in being told to run and hide from evil but run and basically turn our back on trusting the Lord by engaging the world rather than hiding from the world. How can you say to my soul, knowing this defines me. Now, if this statement does not define you, then you're going to have to find yourself in a different place in this psalm, and that's kind of a scary thing. Um, there are really only two places to be in this psalm. Either you're going to be a righteous, upright person, or you're going to be among the wicked. And that's really the only choices you have here. <laughs> and really, in reality, that's all the choices there are. And so we come to this, and the challenge is, how can you challenge who I am? And it's kind of interesting because our world is all about this, right? Um, well, you, I don't, here's my pronouns, and you have to use these pronouns when you talk to me, right? Because of you have to be sensitive to my feelings. And basically, the, this whole liberal mentality just spread their feelings all over the floor is the, is the phrase I grew up with, right? So whenever we got our feelings hurt, that was something, why are your feelings thrown all over the floor? You know, and stomp, stomp. we all want to stomp on them when they're all spread all out like that. That was a turn of phrase from my younger days that we would have. Just suck your feelings up and quit spreading them out there and don't get so hurt every time somebody says something to you. But now that is not just the norm, that has gone to exponential extremes. That we have to sit here and tiptoe around in our language and our engagement with people. If I walk up to you, I can't tell if you're a boy or a girl, I'll just guess. And if you don't like my guess, well, that's your problem. It's not really my problem. Because I can't tell. You know, if you want to wear a t-shirt that says it, if, the, if your feelings are that intense about it, you know, put it out there. But if you're purposely in your presentation of yourself, I can't tell what you are or who you, let alone who you are, um, don't get all hurt um, if you get mislabeled. So we're all about this. But it's interesting, there's one group that you can hurt and hurt and hurt and hurt and they feel justified in doing it. And that is those who trust in the Lord. We still are encountering this, that everyone has to be tolerated except for those who hold to absolute truth in Jesus Christ. And so um, you go out in the public community and you say something against Islam or something against any other faith, you'll be castigated, you'll be 
uh, Islamophobic. You'll be a phobic person. But if you say something against Christianity, if you say something against a Christian, I don't. Have you ever heard the phrase Christian phobic? Have you ever heard anyone use that? Church phobic, Christian phobic. Have you heard anyone? It has never been spoken, has it? Because they can, they can say all the evil they want against the followers of Jesus Christ with impunity. No one calls them Christian phobics. But should we point out sin for sin and evil for evil, we are phobic, massage, all these, I mean, it just goes on and on, right? Every name that they can come up with. And so this is still a very real thing that's going on. And can the truth endure that is the question. You see, I'm, I'm convinced that the reason they have to have their feelings spread all over is because they're living a lie. When you live a lie, um, you don't want to be confronted. And when you have an empty life, that you, the only thing you can define yourself is whether you are, that, that somehow you can choose to change your gender or choose your gender or make up new genders uh, is, is kind of empty. They have nothing. They're miserable people. What is our response? Well, the truth. They can't handle that, and so they only have a single thing, and that is to counterattack by attacking the person because they can't deal with the truth. But when the truth comes under attack, what happens? And that's really what this psalm is about. What happens when we come under attack from the world? When we define ourselves, I will put my trust in the Lord. I put my trust, not just future will, I put my trust in the Lord today. Oh, well, but that only goes so far. And we encounter this, you know, pick your realm of, of decision-making, whether it's financial or relational or, or um, educational or something like that. Oh, you know, they'll attack that. Uh, and think they're righteous in doing that. And so here is the attack on him. Flee as a bird to your mountain, uh, and certainly the wicked are out there, and we're going to talk about them here very shortly, but the whole idea is that somehow we should run off, run away, hide, that we have no footing. But we're standing on the truth. We're standing on the Lord of all the earth. We have this solid, solid ground, this rock. And it is a rock of offense. The world is offended by the fact that we have this incredible stability and this wondrous depth that, of truth. And that kind of absolute structure that they can't really knock down, all they can do is throw these threats out there. And they're... And they're attacking our young people, particularly in their minds, that somehow faith, and this isn't something new, it was happening when I was a young person too, um, that, you know, oh, religion is a crutch. Wasn't that Marx that said that? You need this crutch in your life of religion. And because he had nothing in his life, if you study the life of Karl Marx, uh, I mean, these people are miserable people. They just want other people miserable. They are the wicked. They want to think that somehow they can 
make you run off by clapping their hands really loud and scaring you away. Because they can't comprehend the depth and breadth and strength and height of what you have. Because they have not acknowledged the truth. And so how do we respond? Well, we don't have to compromise the truth because we know that that's a weaker position. If the truth is a fortress, is a high tower, why would you leave the fortress and, and lower yourselves to everyone else? Why walk away from the high tower when it gives you that strength and that benefit? And so we are invited, just flee away like a bird, and it doesn't take much to make a bird fly away. I have birds in my on my house, and I go up to uh, pigeons. They love my solar panels. I don't know why, so I've resolved that this week, I hope. And uh, But I go out there and smack, and they, but they all seem to kind of eventually get back. Um, but this says, just fly away to the mountain. You know, just permanently disappear. Well, that's not who we are. You don't have to do that when you have the truth. When you are grounded in truth, Bring on the assault. And so don't sit there and tell that to my soul to run and hide. That is not a message that we should be communicating to one another, but that is the message the world is going to approach you with and saying that somehow your position is weak and you should run and hide. You do not have a weak position. When you trust in the Lord, you are in the strongest of places, as we'll see. And so... Are the wicked around us? Yes. Take a look. <laughs> Essentially, verse 2. Take a look. The wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string. They, they have, they have, they have uh, ready to shoot. And the word secretly there is really on a moonless night. Uh, without a moon. They'll go out there on a really dark night, and that's when they're going to implement their evil. That their evil is associated, and we're going to see where it's associated, but certainly toward God's people, it's going to expand beyond that. But the idea here is that they're going to go out in the darkest night. What you've just described here is a conspiracy. They're going to do it in secret. It's not going to be open. It's not going to be obvious. We saw the openness and how bad evil gets in the last chapter. But what we see here is how do you engage an enemy that has secretly determined to do evil against God's people, they won't do it openly. They're not going to do it um, in, in the sight. When you're expecting it, they're going to do it on a moonless night, is literally what it says there. They're drawing the bow. They've made their plans. They, they've made ready their arrows. They, they're, they have bending the bows, basically putting the... Um, String on the bow, so you don't carry a bow normally strung. Um, it weakens it, so they would bend the bow, put the arrow, and then put the arrow, notch the arrow, and they're ready to do things, but they're not going to do anything. They've done all that preparation work, waiting for the moonless night. And they want to strike. Well, oh, it sounds like we're in grave danger, doesn't it? From a human perspective, we might see that and say, well, we are in grave danger. Look what they've done. They've made all these preparations. They have this conspiracy. And when we get into the New Testament, we see that men have done just that. Do you remember the book of Acts? When all these guys take a vow that they're not going to eat and drink until they've got Paul dead? 
How did that work out for them? I think they got pretty skinny because God unraveled their plans. Do you remember at the at in the last psalm, it talks about the fact that they're going to fall into their own pits, 9 and 10. Uh, they're going to fall into their own schemes, that God can just put them in circles and, and their own plans to do evil can be thwarted by God and the ones who are injured by it are themselves. God knows how to protect his own. But that doesn't mean they aren't scheming. They are conspiring to do evil. They are doing all the preparations to do evil. While they're preparing to do evil, God is not taken by surprise. You and I may be, but God is not. We shouldn't be because Jesus said, if they hate me, they should hate you. So if I'm a person who puts my trust in Christ, if I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and they hate Jesus, um, I should be functioning in this world as one who anticipates they hate me. I don't have to make them hate me. I just have to follow Jesus, and they will hate me because they will hate him. There's nothing fundamentally about you that they dislike except that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. They want you to just fly away. They think they can startle you into uh, disappearing or disavowing God. They think that your faith is weak because they don't understand the truth that it is founded upon. And so he says, how can you say all this? Well, let's look at where this conspiracy lands in verse 3. And here I want to go over to the Septuagint um, to see what it says. I'm going to read the first three verses here. And the Lord I trust, how will you say to my soul, flee to the mountains like a sparrow? See the sinners stretch tight their bow. They prepare their arrows in the quiver that in a moonless night they may shoot the upright in heart. Here's verse 3. For the things you created, they destroyed. But what did the righteous man do? And that is, in the Septuagint, uh, what can we do? What, what have we done? Well, we haven't done in it. We, and how do we respond? Well, look at what they're created. The, the statement of the foundations here in, your, in the New King James uh, is much better in the Greek that they are trying to destroy God's creation. In their, what are they conspiring to do? What is it that the, that the wicked want to accomplish? Fundamentally, they have banded together with the evil one to, to be destructive towards anything that God created. And the height of God's creation is man. You are the pinnacle of his creative activity, was Adam and Eve. And, God, and Satan hates that. Uh, Lucifer saw what God, that God invested his image in humanity, and from that point on, he hated humanity because we had something he didn't have. He's the ultimate green-eyed monster. And so we find here that what is their focus? Their focus isn't just to attack you personally, but to destroy the things God has created. And so they're conspiring to do this. They're getting their arrows ready. They're filling their quivers. They're bending their bow. They're, they're, they're sneaking around in the dark in the moonless night. And, and ferreting that out is, is a difficult task. It's not easy. 
but we know it's happening because of the nature of who they are. We should anticipate it. And the question is, what can man do? What can the righteous do? We And we come before God frequently, I do, and say, well, we're powerless. I can't stop this, but you are the God of heaven. And so can I stop these? People say, oh, you believe all these conspiracies. Of course I believe in conspiracies, because I believe two things. I believe Satan exists and men are evil. And if you believe Satan exists and men are evil, then you must believe in conspiracies. Period. They conspire against God's creation. And what can we do? Well, they when they ruin the soil, when they ruin the air, when they ruin the water, when they ruin the food. Yeah, I, I my wife, I was, we're looking at this box today, this cereal box that was empty, and I'm like, oh look, genetically engineered. This 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 contains genetically engineered food. I was like, oh great, <laughs> we don't need to buy that anymore. What are they doing? You don't think God engineered food is good enough? We are destroying God's creation on a genetic level all the way up into the macro levels. And people think, oh, Pastor, you think everything... Yes, I believe that they are doing evil against all of God's creation from the microscopic level to the macroscopic level that they want to destroy His creation because God's Word says so, because Satan hates God's created order, and because men are fundamentally evil. And so, yes, I believe these conspiracy theories. I know them to be, because God's Word declares it. I don't base it upon my experience. I base it upon the knowledge of what Satan is like, what men are like, and what God's Word clearly declares. They want to destroy what God has made. Period. And our response to that is, what can I do? Well, I can't, un, you know, and be like, oh, here's the steps we need to take, and we got past these laws. Baloney! There's not a law of man on the earth that can contain the wickedness that is in men's hearts. Once they get to a point of power and, and authority and exercise themselves in, in that realm, and they're full of evil, and they are banded with, with their father, the devil, um, there's no end to the evil they will perpetrate. And the higher their authority and the more resources they have, the more wickedness they will engage in. There's no law that can monitor that or, or um, eliminate that. It never has been. And so here, all the way back in the psalmist's time, what, is the, what are they conspiring to do in the dark? Which means it's in secret. You have to ferret it out. You have to shine a really bright light out there to expose them. They want to destroy what God has made. And the greatest work of God is the Christian. You were created in His image and you were reborn in His Son. You are the highest of God's created work. Because He created and then recreated you in His image. Phenomenal. That's why it says, you're a new creation, all things have passed away and all things have become new. You are the, the, the double 
work of God's creator? Do you not think that they're going to conspire to try to destroy you, to destroy your testimony, to destroy your marriage, to destroy your your um, uh, relationship uh, with God, to destroy your relationship with the church, to to do everything they can to debilitate and and make you bored and disinterested in spiritual matters, uh, to distract you? Oh, of course they will. For you are the highest thing God has made and they want to destroy anything that has God's signature on it. And no one has God's signature on it like the man who identifies himself as I put my trust in the Lord. Oh, they will conspire. They'll conspire against you, but don't think it ends or begins or ends with you. That, that's the highest, but they're attacking everything else too. They will attack the air, they'll attack the water, they'll attack the, the plants, they'll attack animals, they attack the soil, they're going to attack all of it. And they're going to attack each other. Because they hate what God has made. And they will conspire against it. And then we come up, what can I do? And that is what this psalm is all about. Really, what can be done? Well, the next few verses are pretty important. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is his heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, the wicked, and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. And we're going to get into that a little bit. There's some. We're coming into a response, and the response is really going to, and we're going to divide it into two responses. But it begins by understanding that where God is, and and really, a lot of Christians ask this question: God, why aren't you looking at what they're doing to us? And we've talked about that in the past of inviting God's attention. We're going to be doing that a little bit tonight too. I don't know if we'll get that far. But we're inviting God's attention by crying out to Him. We saw that in the last time, crying out to God, look at what they're doing, and inviting His attention. And certainly there's a necessity to that, but that is based upon a, a principle. And the principle is, is that God's throne and God's rule is from heaven, that He is on high. He is the King above all that. He is not only King in terms of the throne, but he is also priest in terms of the temple. He is God. He is the God King. And so he is in his temple, his holy temple. He is the definition of holiness. He will do nothing unrighteously. And he is the king. He has the throne. It rules in heaven. And while on today in our experience, we see what all these who lord over us because of their wealth or power and resources that seem to be available to them, and we say, what can we do against such wickedness that they want to destroy enormous parts of the population? They're doing incredible damage to, to the natural order of this world, and they are manipulating things on a scale that they don't really even comprehend the evil of it. What happens? Well, God is watching. And just as we saw in the previous psalm, 
in this development of the concept of trusting the Lord. It's one thing to have that from that perspective. Now we have it from our perspective, sharing with one another that, well, the Lord's throne is in heaven. He is in his holy temple. He is not gone. And if he hasn't flown away and disappeared, neither should you. (laughs) You can endure. We can make it. Because God isn't going anywhere. He's just not. Well, how can they displace him? All their conspiring cannot displace him from his temple. None of their uh, <laughs> attempts uh, to exercise great authority can overcome his throne. None. They can do nothing. He's still there, he's still who he is. And he is not oblivious to what's going on here, but he has a timing and a purpose, and he is in this engaged even now. What is he engaged in now? Well, we talked about filling up his wrath uh, the last couple of weeks. We talk about it, but uh, in terms of examining, and, and the word here is testing men. What, who are you? What are you? Are you genuine followers of Jesus Christ? In our study in John, we saw Jesus had to do this multiple times, right? He had this huge multitude following him around. And he's like, okay, uh, but he knew. He knew it was a mixed multitude, right? Some people just followed him for food. You know, they just, this guy feeds me and I don't have to work. I can listen to him all day if he feeds me. And there are people, they'll listen to me all day if I pay them or feed them to do it, right? They won't come and give. They only come to take. So Jesus Christ knew who those people were and others that, that you know, they had this kingdom narrative. You're, this might be the guy that can get rid of the Romans. They had that, that geopolitical interest and, and there are certain people that are placating the church out of geopolitical uh, aspirations. Um, and I have those people contacting me regularly. Um, oh, I want to come speak to a church. I said, why? I said, no, that's not what we're about. We're not a geopolitical entity. You don't get access to this for your geopolitical purposes. Um, you could sit there and say, oh, we need to be unified and all this, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, I'm not giving you that kind of access. So Jesus knew that there was a group there that was like that. They just wanted him to be king and throw off the Romans and have a military coup and all of that. Um, and he also knew those who only wanted to hear the nice things. They didn't want to hear the hard things. And when you get to hard teachings, what they do? Oh, that's hard. What was their response? They left from following after him. And so that was true in Jesus' day, and it's true today. So God, it says, tests men. Once we begin to understand that our role here is not to solve men's wickedness, because we can't. Our role here is not to (laughs) displace Satan from any part of the earth other than our own hearts. And these people that are saying, oh, we're going to go, what is that term that they use in a lot of Pentecostal churches? We're going to go tear down strongholds, something like that. Or they they use this terminology that they're going to go and bind, they're binding, they're binding Satan. They're binding, you know, it's, it's not a directive in God's word. You know, that, that's this other 
doctrinal position that has very little, if any, biblical merit. Rather, um, God is testing us. Our relationship with the evil as well is not to prevent it. It is to uh, recognize it, to disassociate from it, and that's called separation. That's why Baptists are called separatist Baptists. And, and that is we're going to separate from the practices of this world, not that we're not going to ever engage the world. We're going to engage it, but not from within it. We're going to be in the world, but not of it. So we're not going to participate in your things to reach you. We're going to step away from your evil and invite you to our rock of absolute truth. That is the premise of separatistic Baptists and separatistic Christians, is that we're going to take this stand and invite you out of the muck instead of going down into the muck with you and somehow thinking that's better ministry. But a lot of our churches are in the muck thinking that that's better ministry than standing out of it and pulling people to the truth. We compromise truth so that we can go and reach them. But we're not but once you reach them, what do you got? Because you can't get them to the truth because you've compromised it. You're just down in the quicksand with them. And so God says, I use this uh, during this time while he is still God in his temple, undisplaced. He is still on his throne in heaven, again, unthreatened. And his eyes are looking. His eyelids test the sons of men. So here's who he's testing. Is it just the wicked? No, he tests the righteous. Do you still put your trust in him? Is this really who you are or just who you say you are? When all the world conspires against you, will you still trust in the Lord? God's using evil to test the righteous. Will you still trust in him? Now we have an A, A prime, B prime, B um, parallelism here. Uh, and so we're going to investigate that very quickly. I got like five, ten minutes to do that at the end here. So he tests the righteous and we'll notice that now let's see uh, what happens here. And again, we find it a little bit differently spoken in the, in the Greek uh, than, than this, but um, all of this is premised that God is still God, He is still King, He is, he is not displaced at all, and so uh, here's how the Greek describes it, the Lord examines the righteous man and the ungodly man. And so He's going to examine both of you. It's not really clearly portrayed here in, the, in our Masoretic based text, but in the Septuagint, we have this. That he's going to test both. So his test of the righteous is, are you still going to trust in me, right? That's the test on you. What about the test of the unrighteous, of the wicked man? Does God still test them? Oh, yes, he does. And so now we're going to work through this. In your text, it says, the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. You might say, well, God hates those, and we've talked about that in other passages, but here that's really not what is being communicated. And the question is, does, who does the his respond, re, reply to? The Greek gives us a little clarity here, so let me read it again to you. It's, he says, uh, 
The Lord examines the righteous man and the ungodly man. And he who loves unrighteousness hates his own soul. And so that's the A prime. So the first person he encounters is the last person on the list, the ungodly man, and he goes to the ungodly man. Do you realize that the ungodly man, the one who loves violence, hates his own soul? Ultimately, while he hates you as a follower of God, while he hates the absolute truth of God's created order, of God's person, of his kingship, of his deity, while he hates all that, ultimately, the work that he's doing to try to destroy creation actually destroys himself. And this is what has been portrayed in other passages, that they will dig a pit and then fall into that very same pit they dug thinking they would trap you. They really are doing injury to themselves. And we see, to me, it's almost comical if it weren't so violent and sad. You know, that, oh, we're mad about this, so we're going to go around, you know, we're, we're mad because you maltreated somebody of our skin color. And so we're going to go through our neighborhood and burn it down. You just burned down your own neighborhood. Why would you do that? Because you're mad about how they treated, so now you're going to maltreat each other even worse. And here are these businessmen are that have businesses in these, these very difficult areas, and you start burning them down, looting them. And it's like, as in protest. Protest who? You just did it to those that were serving you. You hate your own soul. You're doing injury to yourself. And ultimately, what the wickedness are the, the wickedness they're conspiring to do really only destroys themselves. They fall into the very pit they dug for us. And that's what God's judgment is. He tests them. And he says, okay, you're going to conspire to do all these wicked things to try to destroy my creation. It's just to your own destruction. You want to destroy what I made, but you end up destroying yourself instead. You actually hate yourself in this process. And boy, we see that evident all around us. And so he who loves unrighteousness hates his own soul because it just rips to the soul of man to do unrighteousness. It degrades man to do unrighteousness. It is uncivilized to do unrighteousness. If you think you can be insulated from because you're the perpetrator of it, it's foolishness. There is no honor among thieves. And so what is the judgment? That's not the judgment of God. If you love evil, wickedness, you hate yourself because you're, you're not doing yourself any benefit. Here's God's response. He shall rain down snares upon sinners, fire, brimstone, raging wind, and that's going to be their lot. That's going to be their portion or their, their uh, allotment. And so that's what they're going to get. So here they're going to they're going to love unrighteousness even though it makes them miserable and and they just hate themselves. I mean, how much do you have to hate yourself to go start cutting off parts of your body to be something that you're not and could never become? How? How much do you have to hate yourself? 
and think that by redefining, you think you can redefine yourself by these external shallow things that you have no choice over instead of seeking to be righteous. You love violence. If you love unrighteousness and violence, you hate your own soul. But here's the judgment. That's not even the judgment. That's just who you are. That defines you now. And the judgment is fire and brimstone and a hot wind and, and God's against you. God's going to pour it down and He's going to rain down snares upon the sinners. Traps. They're going to be trapped in their own wickedness. This is what God has in store for them. So here's the people who love violence, love wickedness, um, love unrighteousness. Here's the result for them. But then, there's the other ones. The righteous Lord loves the righteous. And that's in the Greek. Yours is just says the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. And this is really talking about the Lord loves, the righteous Lord loves the, the righteousness. He loves righteousness. When we join him in that, then we have an expectation. What is our expectation? That his face will be shown towards us. His countenance beholds upright. And, and if you notice, maybe in your margins, it might say it's reversed, that the upright get to see God's face. It's not just that, and, and, and either way, it's good, okay? When God's face is towards you, it means he's giving you his attention. You have his favor. When you get to see his face, means you get to behold his countenance, you get to participate in his blessing. So whether it's originating from God to you or you recipient, it's okay either way. Um, But it gives a fullness, doesn't it? That God loves the righteous. He loves righteousness. That's who he is. And so I put my trust in God when I see the world conspiring to do wickedness against God's created order and God's creation man and God's recreation the Christian then I put my trust in him I recognize he can test my faith and if I continue to do righteously he will grant me access to his countenance to his face to his attention he will hear your prayers that's what it means when God turns his face toward you it means he's listening you have his attention you have his involvement in your life And this is what James tells us, right? James tells us that the prayers of the righteous man avail much. They accomplish much. And so my response to this is not to fly away as a bird and to run and hide or stick my head in the sand or or just give up. To fly away as a bird of the mountain is to give up. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to surrender my high tower. I'm not going to move from this wonderful rock of truth that I have landed upon by faith in Jesus Christ. No, I'm going to stand my ground and I'm going to try to maintain righteousness. I'm going to strive after that every day of my life. And in that condition, I have passed the test and I have an opportunity to have God's face turned favorably toward me. The wicked will be destroyed. It's a frightening scene. Snares and traps, fire, brimstone, and a hot raging wind. Sounds like desert in New Mexico, mid-July, right? Early July. 
what God has in store for the wicked. So don't listen to them. When they try to frighten you away from following after God or to displace you from your, from your high tower, your refuge in Jesus Christ, don't, don't let him dissuade you from that. Hold there. You have the ground that will be tested, sure, certainly. But you hold that ground. And God says, after that test, I love right, God who loves righteousness. He'll say, I'm going to turn my face towards you. And this is what we desire. We all want God's favor, God's face, his attention. Um, this is the prerequisite. It requires something of you, that you choose righteousness. That you choose to separate yourself from the evil conspiring of this world against God's created order and God's creations, man. And that we should join God, not only in trusting in Him, but of loving righteousness. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you again for your word and for its power and strength. And we thank you for this, the stability of knowing your truth. And Lord, we see a world that is just in chaos. Who are destroying themselves for lack of knowing you and your word and, and fighting against not only creation, but themselves, fighting against what they are. And we see this on a scale that is uh, just unprecedented, really. And so Lord, we know your coming is soon, that your movement of your throne to reveal yourself to men in the clouds is coming soon. Until that day, Lord, we pray that you might continue to strengthen us, give us wisdom from your word, strength of character to stand. And Lord, we know there's a costliness. You've taught us that by your own example. May cost us our very lives, but not our eternities. For you are still God, you are still the King. You'll remain on your throne and in your temple. And on this truth, we want to stand. Lord, help us. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.